My name's Colin Williams. And I'm Ian Rowlands. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. And, uh, well, Ian, why don't you tell everybody where we are? We've just had a really uh, interesting autumnal walk up along um, the Oxfordshire Downs, I guess we're in, Mm. um, at the Ridgeway. Yes. Which is reputed to be the, uh, the oldest known trackway or road in the British Isles. Right. And here we've arrived at Wayland Smithy, which uh, we'll come to a description of in a minute, but it's a very atmospheric place on a windy day, um, an ancient site amongst the beech trees. Yeah, and uh, Wayland Smithy is uh, 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 over 5,000 years old, and it's a, um, a chambered long barrow, uh, a chambered tomb, and we're, we're, we're sitting right in, sort of facing the entrance, um, really, which is... The entrance is flanked on left and right by these huge upright stones um, and uh, you can see a, um, a, a straight into the entrance of the of the tomb um, with uh, a roof stone, two side stones um, and then some upright stones um, flanking um, the passage towards the chamber um, left and right. It's a popular spot, um, sort of pe- people visiting, walking around it all of whom seem to be gazing in wonder at these huge stones and how they got there and, and how the, the it's a, it's Neolithic a, it's people constructed place, it. It's a isn't it? You know, it's 180 feet long, this thing. So it's, and it's kind of got a broadly sort of large coffin shape to it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's interesting that coffin shape, we were saying earlier, it's, you know, certainly redolent of its purpose of, uh, I, I think around 14 people were found, yeah. Uh, yeah. 14 bodies um, um, buried in here. Excavated in the early 1960s, I believe. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and they found sort of grave goods with the body. Mostly young people, it sounds like, as well. And then they found flint arrowheads snapped right. off at the point, um, almost symbolically with some of the some of the remains of the people. So. But it's interesting, Wayland Smithy is also quite nearby, uh, maybe just um, uh, a mile down the track um, to the east. Um, it's the Uffington White Horse. Wayland Smithy's much more famous um, Iron Age neighbour. Um, this this great um, Iron Age horse um, cut into the chalk on the hillside there, facing north towards the village of Uffington. Um, and although these these you know Wayland Smithy and this amazing Long Barrow and Uffington White Horse, amazing uh, Neolithic Iron Age um, monuments. Um, that's kind of not what we want to talk about today, um, because they're both um, very close to the ridgeway that you mentioned, this very ancient roadway, this very ancient trackway. And um, that's what I wanted us to talk about today, um, the, the lines and paths of the landscape. Um, not only ancient roadways and ancient footways, um, but generally the, the lines that humans have made um, on the landscape and how they um, perhaps affect our experience and our perception of the landscape around us. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, uh, particularly the way that um, maybe in certain places where this is the, the permitted places to walk these days, mm. but historically, of course, the Ridgeway would have been a safe place to walk. You could have wandered wherever you wanted to, but that was the, the high, dry ground. It was also a place with a vantage point, so you could see that you weren't attacked by anyone. And, and the Ridgeway connected the, the south coast of England at Dorset um, with the coast of East Anglia at the Wash, on the sort of pretty much on the east side of the country, and uh, was a sort of trading route between those two places. So these were important practical routes across the landscape, 
And maybe even in that time, and certainly in these times, they've become places where the placing of one foot in front of another um, becomes symbolic somehow. You, you are hemmed into that route. It's a reflective place. It's a, a transitional place. And these marks on the landscape now become readily identifiable as uh, places of almost pilgrimage, if you like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, that, uh, our country here in the UK is crisscrossed with these things. We've got the Ridgeway, other names that people might recognise, um, the Ickneald Way, the Pedder's Way, mm-hmm. um, the Harrow Way, the Wayfarer's Walk, which is uh, just, just nearby where, where I live. Um, and all of these things, it makes, it makes me wonder about um, the precedence of these places, as you say, maybe the Ridgeway became a, a beaten path, a trodden path, because it was a safe place to walk in the surrounding landscape. I think if we think about the Neolithic landscape, you, you and I walked down the Ridgeway through areas of wide open agricultural space, um, but with lovely mixed species hedgerows on either side of us. But uh, back when Wayland Smithy was constructed, it would have been a well-treed landscape yeah. um, with lots going on. And it, as I say, it makes you wonder what came first? Were were Wayland Smithy and Uffington Whitehorse constructed here because it was near a place of um, transverse across the landscape? Or were these things here first and then the pathway followed because it brought people to these places? Either way, I think it speaks of our um, the human need for us to make sure we have way markers and places of importance and places of commerce um, and commerce and conversation I was recently in the Peak District in Derbyshire uh, where there's the famous plague village of Eam where during the Great Plague um, uh, the people of the village came together and decided that they didn't want to infect um, really? the surrounding um, villages and so they chose um, to band together and to isolate themselves in this village and um, just on the boundaries of the village out on the hills there uh, there there was this stone where people would leave food for the villagers and the villagers would leave money soaked in vinegar um, in order that they could continue to sustain themselves but wow. not infect um, their neighbours as it were with uh, and and so these these paths so those paths around the village would have existed for millennia um, probably around those settlements um, and yet they became really significant in a time of in, in a time of plague and disease and and when the village was in extremis these boundaries and markers and paths became really really important to them hmm. and I, I'm going to su- suggest something to you Colin you might disagree with me it seems that you more than I have an interest in the um the human place in the landscape and sense of place and uh, putting our, our imprint, if you like. Is, is, is that true? Whereas, whereas I'm fascinated with these old trackways, I guess it'll go back to my first reading of Alfred Watkins' The Old Straight Track, published in, in the 1925, I think it was, and he published that, and, uh, and, and postulating the theory of ley lines. So that, in a way, the trackways uh, replicated something that was in the earth already. Mm. Uh, and I don't know whether that's the difference between your and my approach to footpaths and trackways in the landscape. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think I, I think I, those thoughts enter my mind as well. Are these things here? Um, 
was it, is, was it our natural inclinations as species that made us follow, in, in the case we've just talked about, the ridgeway, and follow the spine along the very top of the downs, where on each side there is a downward slope, and so you're at a spine, and so it's a natural geographical feature, a natural place our species would have gravitated to, um, and maybe even a natural boundary. And they, we've speculated before, and, and archaeologists have speculated that dolmens and burial mounds like the one we're near here um, were boundary markers as much as they were right. um, uh, places of burial, so, so chosen for their location. Um, uh, it, was it just a matter of convenience that, that, that cut these paths into the landscape? Um, was it purely um, uh, sort of uh, selfish reasons, as it were, for reasons of trade or commerce um, that these paths came to be? Um, I'm, I'm open to any or all of those interpretations, and they're probably all, they probably all have some um, impact in, in some small way. So what do you make of the, I suppose, the notion that um, humans want to make a mark on the landscape? Mm. You know, so, um, you know, we're, I suppose we're, we're the art-making animal, aren't we? And, you know, we like to, 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 to wave our hands at other people um, and future generations by leaving something behind in a way that other creatures in the natural world do coincidentally but they don't do deliberately mm. it's interesting isn't it and and here we're Wayland Smithy is surrounded by enormous beech trees I mean there's some real monsters here and on many of them and we're looking at three that are close to <laughs> yeah, us that's true people have carved their initials into yeah, those trees um, uh, uh, it, the you know, and there's, you know, love hearts with people's initials in and, uh, you know, various people love various other people according to the marks on these, uh, on, on the bark of this tree. Um, and, you know, they've come here to see Wayland Smithy and felt like they'd also wanted to leave a mark somehow. Um, hmm. But all, a lot of the trees that surrounding it have got these, these penknife carvings on. Um, whether that equates to wanting to whether that was a real um, want to carve a path into a landscape, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I can see how the parallels might be there. Um, there's been some lovely writing recently, and most recently I read an article in the New Yorker magazine about paths of desire, um, which is where if you're in a park or a cemetery or a garden, you'll often see an unofficial path which perhaps cuts a corner or um, it, uh, it, it takes a shortcut to a place that the official path doesn't take you to. What was the name you gave that? You said it to pa Paths of Desire. That's nice. Um, I like that. And where we humans just take a route and we say, well, that's my route to get there. I'm just going to go across there. And so many people have done that that eventually it's worn the grass away or worn the ground away. And you can see there's a, there's a definite path in front of you. Um, and I like that very much, that we're still path-making animals. And, and Robert McFarlane, of course there is a, there is a, the arch book about this topic is The Old Ways by Robert okay. McFarlane, um, which, which is a terrific read. And um, in there he gives a lovely phrase, he said, uh, paths are the habits of a landscape.
So it makes me think of that piece of artwork, um, Richard Long's A Line Made by Walking, which ah, he yes. made in 1967, didn't he? And uh, that was, that was a, a walk that Long took from his home in Bristol um, to St. Martin's. And in his field in Wiltshire, he, he, he flattened the turf and as it caught the sunlight, made this path and made a series of photographs of it. It was sort of, um, I guess, it anticipated, you know, performance artwork and it's sort of ahead of its time really but it was sort of a an installation and yeah. a photograph of lines made on the landscape in a sense of yeah. permanence or impermanence yeah and i guess we see the um as we see the antecedents of that of stuff like that where, wherever we're walking as we were walking today along the ridgeway there were paths going off to the left and right um that were clearly been there a long time and clearly just from the sort of compass point point of view seem to point towards the shortest route to a habitation um, and you think yeah why, why wouldn't you make a, a, a footpath which took you from one village to the other or one town to the other and, and, and that's what we're left with it does make me wonder how um, it how those things grew up over history to become roads Yeah. Um, and I don't know what the process of history was that made those things but uh, it um, they, they had to start somewhere I assume it's interesting isn't it because you talked about sort of almost uh, paths of desire really didn't you the kind of uh, you didn't have would have game trails you'd have um, I think it's a phrase the Americans use a bootleg trail right which will be something that is sort of uh, yeah improvised then it develops into something that lots of people use and eventually becomes a major highway and we we, we thrill to finding one of those little animal trails, don't we? We'll be passing a hedgerow yeah. and suddenly you'll see this path which is clearly used by badger or deer or any of those things. And we go, we go oh, look, there's, there's an animal track or there's an animal path. And, uh, and yet what we do is no different. No, I mean, it's, it's a clear identify with the, the non-human world, isn't it? And badgers will use those paths for thousands of years, not just hundreds of years, but they've been identified as being used... Of, enormously long really? periods of time so you know there'll be historical badger sets and then those paths that lead from it to where they then go and forage for beetles worms tubers in the landscape those paths themselves will be you know of, of enormous uh, sort of antecedents you know they could have been, mm. been there for an enormous period of time so so i think it's there is some fundamental similarity between us and the non-human world in that respect but i guess it's that the thing that fascinates me is how we we, we cherish and celebrate those things and want our, our descendants to, to revere them in some way. Where we are here is, is it National Trust? It the, is. This place yeah. here and yeah. you know, it's, it's all immaculately preserved. We have the, the trappings of modern society, grass reseeded areas and one or two little fences keep people on the trails. It's been a very hot summer and grass has worn away. And we now want people to walk in a prescribed manner yeah. and erode only certain parts. That we approve of, yeah. Um, unapp yeah. Unapproved walking is something, particularly in the UK, that we seem to be uncomfortable with. Yeah, yeah. The thought of striking out from the yeah. dotted green line on the map yeah. and just walking across a field or through a woodland yeah. um, seems to fill us with dread slightly, um, as if we're going to be caught or um, chastened. Yeah. Um, I, well, I always remember when I, I I lived in the Highlands of Scotland for about twenty years and. Uh, and it took me a while to get used to this myself. And then when, when I led sort of wildlife watching tours with people, they struggled to get to grips with the fact that, well, we could wander wherever we want. 
Um, actually, there was no, uh, at that time, no rights of access anywhere. It was an, an informal right that you could wander where you wanted to, not enshrined in law. Whereas in, in England, you have a network of paths that you are legally entitled to walk upon. But people used to freak out when I said, let's just go walking through here. Well, right. Is it a path? <laughs> And also people really struggled physically to walk off paths. I think that was something I really learned. You, you watch people walk on uneven terrain, and particularly us modern humans, our, our leg muscles are very unaccustomed to balancing us. We're used to yeah. walking on tarmac and level surfaces, and if you take people off a path, um, you can see them really struggle. They're wobbling around, falling over, and uh, so we now are, are an animal prescribed by pathways and roads as to where we're we're likely to wander, and I guess most wild creatures would feel safe a very short distance away from the path, knowing that very few humans are going to venture in there. Yeah. to a close really in and consider how these paths and tracks in, enhance our experience in in the non-human world and I think for me um, that there's part of the that some of it's an adventurous sense it's interesting to find a hollowway or or a track or a line that you've is unexpected and you haven't explored before and perhaps disappears into some woodland or some undergrowth or across a field that you're not quite sure what's on the other side of it. I think there's a certain element of that for me um, and also something that when I have been in literally trackless wilderness, so places where there are there's none of this and so I think of um, the desert mm -hmm. and sometimes moorland where if there are paths there there's sometimes a little indistinct um, that you do feel a little it, it is a little unsettling it can be a little unsettling to think well, if I start walking how can I be sure I'm not going to fall into the trap of going in circles how do I know I'm traveling in the right direction am I traveling towards safety am I traveling towards danger if I go across those things and so I think unconsciously having now thought about it and I was talking about it a little I think these paths and tracks do have got an effect on me and my hmm? experience in the landscape mm -hmm. and experience in the non-human world. I, I get that and I get the security that goes with tracks. Um, my love of trackways I think and this has helped me reflect on that is is uh, the sense of antiquity and the sense of the bones of the land um, and it'll often be to do like like where we are here there's a tremendous sense of presence here you know it could almost be the spirits of ancestors that, that there's a lot of human identifying with these places but I do like going off the track and I do want to reclaim and, and I actually spend a lot of my time reclaiming the natural navigational skills or orientation skills or the ability to thrive in wild places and still be able to find your way around um, the books of Tristan Gooley are really interesting for that you know that the natural navigation skills that would enable us to always figure out where we are 
how far we've travelled, what direction we're facing, um, without the need to be on the old straight track. Mm. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us and the podcast and some of the things we've talked about in this uh, short episode um, on our website at beneaththestream.com. <laughs>